Welcome to week nine in the study of Galatians. We're in chapter two and Paul is in the process of establishing his authority. In the first chapter, in the first verse, he established that the gospel he preached was from Yeshua and not any man. Paul received the gospel by divine revelation. And now to further show that fact, he is in the process of showing that he and Yeshua's original disciples agree. And that they put their stamp of approval on his ministry to the non-Jews. In the next few verses, he's going to show that the approval of Peter, James, and John actually shut the mouths of those who opposed his gospel message. Further establishing his authority and the validity of his message. And so he is intent on establishing his authority and in the process, diminishing the authority of the circumcision group. He spends a whole of two chapters out of six establishing his authority. For me, in teaching the book of Galatians, this is great because it gives me time to take a few rabbit trails and establish a few things like what is the oral Torah, what is the problem, and so forth, as we kind of work through his authority, which we all accept, I'm sure. But chapter 2, verse 1 begins this way. We're actually a few verses down, but I want to begin with verse 1. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took also Titus along. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers infiltrated our ranks to spy out the freedom we have in Messiah Yeshua and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. And so by now we all know that the truth of the gospel that Paul speaks here is really a matter of identity. Who are these non-Jews coming to faith in Messiah Yeshua? Paul's position is that the Torah and that of the Torah is that non-Jews do not have to convert to being Jewish to be accepted into full fellowship. And the key word for us there is full fellowship. He's showing that here here in chapter 2 by the fact that Titus, an uncircumcised was allowed fellowship with the elders of this Jerusalem assembly, both in this important meeting that they're having and, of course, table fellowship that they would have shared as well. Paul knows and teaches that circumcision has nothing to do with their acceptance by God, nor does it have anything to do with their spirituality. So his point is the same that Peter made in Acts chapter 10. Hey, if God accepted them, who are we to shun them? Or limit the fellowship with them. The fact is, converting does nothing for the non-Jew. Because Yeshua has already done it all. And in fact, if they do convert, they're actually obscuring the good news. These non-Jews Paul is fighting for have been accepted by God. And it's been witnessed by their receiving the Holy Spirit. God does not pour out His Spirit of holiness on the unclean. They have been washed clean, not by ethnicity, but by God. 
Jewish tradition of the day says Gentiles must be circumcised to be full members of the covenant community. But God, through his spirit, confirmed what the Torah said. They are made clean through faith. Sadly, the Roman church and subsequently nearly all churches have following them have mistakenly taken Paul's fight against this tradition in the book of Galatians and coupled it with Acts chapter 15 to be to insinuate that Paul had separated himself from the law of Moses and anything Jewish. They have taken this letter and combined it with their own anti-Semitism and used it to actually replace the Jewish people in the plan of God. Creating for themselves a new identity, which we're going to talk about a little later. Because this letter is all about identity. Sadly, they have in many instances reinterpreted the Bibles even in this way. To the degree that one almost has to have a divine revelation themselves to get to the truth of the gospel. By way of example, we looked at this a little bit before in one of the other earlier lessons, but let's look briefly at the word church again. You see, the church is a new identity. The new Israel, if you will. How many times have you heard a preacher call his congregation, Church! Listen, church, we have to do this or we have to do that. Well, he just called his congregation stone and wood because the word church originally meant building. It's a building. It comes into our vocabulary from a bad translation of the Greek word ekklesia. If you look at the Greek word ekklesia, it's always translated in other versions like the Septuagint as assembly. And even in our Messianic writings, it's translated assembly when it refers to a secular meeting. But when it refers to followers of Yeshua, it miraculously changes from assembly to the word church. And the first occurrence is in our Bible is in Matthew chapter 16 where Yeshua says this in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you the truth, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You see, this gives the reader the idea that Yeshua is beginning something new called a church. And so once you accept Yeshua, you have a new identity. You are the church. And nothing could be further from the truth because Yeshua merely meant an assembly, an assembly that began with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. If we look to other passages, we can find the same thing. Nearly every Christian Bible has been translated with some anti-Torah or anti-Jewish bias. Let's look at another example, a simple one. Colossians 2.16, it says, in the NIV, it reads this way, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Messiah. Because the translators believe Christians are no longer to follow the Torah or the festivals, the verb tense is changed here to indicate that the festivals of the Lord are no longer of any value, but they were shadows of things to come. And of course, it should read, they are shadows of things to come. And that's because the festivals will always be shadows of things to come until all things have been established. You know, if we look to the common teaching on this passage, it's even worse. 
I've heard pastors teach that the food referred to here is pork. And the Sabbath referred to here is Sunday. And the festivals are Christmas and Easter. Nothing could be further from the truth. We know that because only the foods that God gave and the festivals that God gave and the Sabbath that God gave could possibly be shadows of things to come that teach about the Messiah. King James is a really good translation, but it's not without its bias as well. Listen to this. Acts chapter 12 and verse 4. And when he apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Easter? Really? The disciples didn't keep Easter. The word there is Pascha. It's the word for Passover. And if this were bad enough, this translation, Strong's even got caught up in the air. Strong's dictionary reads this way. The festival or special sacrifice is connected with Easter or Passover. So you have to go to Therese to really get the, the real feeling here. It says the Paschal sacrifice, which was accustomed to be offered for the people's deliverance of old from Egypt. The Paschal lamb. The lamb of the Israelites were accustomed to slay and eat on the 14th day of the month of Nisan in memory of the day which their forefathers depart from Egypt were bidden by God to slay and eat a lamb and to sprinkle their doorposts with its blood that the destroying angel seeing the blood might pass over their dwellings. Messiah crucified is likened to the slain Paschal lamb, the Paschal supper, the Paschal feast, the feast of Passover. Intending from the 14th day to the 20th day of Nisan. No mention of the word Easter there. And there shouldn't be. The point being that Christian traditional teaching regarding Torah and anything Jewish has found its way into our interpretation of the Bible. And this is especially so with the book of Galatians. We come up with a new identity, the church. And the church doesn't need law. It doesn't need festivals or anything that would be considered Jewish. And this all has to do with identity. The teachings that came into being because, the, because we in the early church, we called ourselves the church and we usurped the identity of Israel and the Jewish people in the plan of God. Because now God was no longer focused on his people Israel, but he was only focused on the church. And we taught that God had forsaken Israel for the new entity called the church. Well, all you have to do is read the book of Romans and give it an honest read and you can never come up with that again. You'll never say or teach or even think that again. Contrary to what is preached in churches, Paul, by preaching the good news that Gentiles no longer have to be circumcised and convert to be full covenant, mem- to be full covenant members, full community members, is not doing away with the Torah, but he's actually upholding the Torah. He's actually fulfilling the Torah. The only place that the Torah requires non-Jews to be circumcised, to be covenant members, is Genesis chapter 17. And listen to what it says. I put Young's literal up here because it's really a good translation and I wanted to be just as clear as I could be on this. And God saith unto Abraham... And thou dost keep my covenant, thou and thy seed after thee, to their generations. This is my covenant which shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every male is to be circumcised. 
And ye have circumcised the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall, it, and it hath become a token of a covenant between me and you. A son of eight days is circumcised by you. Every male to your generations born in the house or bought with money from any son of a stranger who is not of thy seed is certainly circumcised. Who is born in thy house or bought with thy money. And my covenant hath become in your flesh a covenant age during and an uncircumcised one, a male whose flesh, whose foreskin is not circumcised, even that person hath been cut off from his people. My covenant hath been broken. These are God's instructions for non-Jews who need to be circumcised. And God is quite specific. Anyone born in the house of Abraham or bought with his money. So ask yourself, do these Galatians living in Galatia or the Romans living in Rome or any non-Jew who's not a slave, do they need to be circumcised? Well, not according to Torah. So if Paul says, look, these non-Jews have been made part of the covenant through their acceptance of Yeshua, through their faith in God, having been evidenced by the fact that God has given them the spirit of holiness and they don't need to be circumcised, is he violating Torah? Again, of course not. So Paul is not abolishing a Torah command. He's saying that the law of the sages regarding Gentiles to be circumcised, to be full covenant members, is not a valid interpretation of the Torah. So what he's doing is he's upholding the Torah in the same way Yeshua did not abolish the Torah, but fulfilled it. He's giving us the true interpretation here. This matter of identity is so important to us. Who am I? What can I call myself? It's powerful. We all have this need to identify ourselves. How many people have been, have been asked by someone, what church do you go to? Ah, uh, yeah. Right? Well, I don't go to a church. I go to a synagogue. It's a messianic congregation. What's messianic? You've all been there, done that, right? It's this matter of identity. Who are we in Messiah Yeshua? We all have to identify ourselves. Sadly, even in the Messianic movement, there are many who don't understand what Paul is saying about identity here. There's a new thing going on. It's called the Messianic Rabbinical Council. And it's formed from members of the UMJC, the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations. It's one of the two mainstream Messianic Jewish organizations and thankfully not the one we belong to. But they put out this statement. Listen to this. This is from the council. On conversion. What exactly do we mean by conversion? Conversion is the means whereby a non-Jew moves fully into status of a Jew among the community of Israel with all privileges and responsibility accompanying such a fundamental change of religious identity. Why is this so important to a maturing Messianic Judaism? I offer three basic reasons. Offering conversion is a matter of integrity, a matter of love, and a matter of fidelity to the overreaching plan of God as revealed in Scripture. Exactly what Paul and the disciples are fighting against. This idea of identity that somehow what Yeshua did was incomplete. And in order to be a full covenant member, you have to be Jewish. Now the paper goes on to list the benefits. Listen to this. This is the benefits if you submit to the conversion. Our trajectory should include disallowing 
those few practices which are emblematic of Jewish covenant obligation to non-Jews who do not wish to convert. This would include things like wearing a tallit, coming to the bima to read Torah, becoming bar mitzvah, serving as rabbis and cantors. I, I got to ask these. I'd love to ask these guys, where do they find that being a rabbi or a cantor or reading Torah from the bima are Jewish covenant obligations? I don't find that anywhere in my Bible. But they're saying that unless you convert, you'll not be allowed to come to the bima to read Torah, serve as a rabbi or a cantor. In other words, you're not full covenant members. And they make it perfectly clear later in this following statement. Listen to this one. Finally, we should welcome non-Jews among us who do not wish to convert and who are happy to take their place in a synagogue under the kinds of legitimate guidelines described above. There are many such people, and as mentioned earlier in this pamphlet, often they, these often serve with great enthusiasm and effectiveness in the Messianic community. This paper makes it plain to see that this is about identity, the very thing that Paul is arguing against. It's very much the same problem. These people don't want non-Jews to be on the same level unless they are the same. The point is, they don't get it. They don't get the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is arguing for full covenant membership for non-Jews, those from the nations who have put their faith and trust in Messiah Yeshua. You know, uh, you shouldn't just pick on the UMJC because the two houses are no different. They argue for identity among Israel. They feel the need to identify with Israel to be full covenant members and so they concocted a story that they're from one of the lost tribes. They don't have any proof, but they must be. It's all about identity. I'm part of Israel. Well, Paul had no problem with identity. All that he was before Yeshua was unimportant to the surpassing greatness of knowing Messiah Yeshua. And his identity was, we read it over and over through the book of Galatians, he is in Messiah. That's his identity. That's my identity. I'm in Messiah. That's all I ever want to be. Well, that's another rabbit trail. But if you don't get that this book is about identity, about being in Messiah Yeshua, you're doomed to make one of these mistakes that I just mentioned above. They made these mistakes anciently and they're still making them today. Let's get back to Paul's proofs. He's still proving his authority. Verse 6. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter had been to the Jews. And so Paul speaks of some who were deemed important, but he doesn't make mention of who they are. If we look to verse 9, he mentions Peter, James, and John, as, and he calls them pillars. And most commentaries are of the opinion that he's speaking of them, and I used to think that as well, but not after rereading it. I no longer think that. He says, they added nothing to my message. And then in verse 9, he says of Peter, James, and John, he says they gave him the right hand in fellowship. They did, in fact, add something to his message. They added their authority, their approval. 
And so who is he speaking of? Well, I don't think it's Peter, James, and John. It hardly fits the context. Rather, it would seem that he's speaking of those who he's speaking of in verse 4 and 5, where he said this, This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy out the freedom we have in Messiah Yeshua to make us slaves. However, we did not give in to a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain in you. He speaks of some men who seemed to be important, who were more than likely those who were opposed to his message. They may be from Galatian or they may be even from Jerusalem. They may be some of those he'll speak of later from James's group. Remember in verse 11, he'll say this. And when Peter came to Antioch, to the face I stood up against him because he was blameworthy. For before coming of certain from James with the nations, he was eating. And when they came, he was withdrawing and separating himself for fear of those of the circumcision. But whoever they were, these men were respected by others, but Paul says, not by me. They were in opposition to his message. And then he says, they were even convinced in the end that Paul was correct. He says, on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now it makes perfect sense that these would have been one from James because they would have been convinced when James gave the right hand of fellowship. So in verse 8 he says, For God, who is at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. Those who were opposed to the message of Paul were made to see the correctness of what he was teaching and preaching. The apostles gave the right hand of fellowship and recognized God's grace, or we could say God's divine influence in Paul's life. Now, we don't really get the full impact of this when it says the right hand of fellowship. We think they shook hands, and, and but that is not really a first century understanding. It means much more. The right hand was always the symbol of power. That's how it's used in Exodus chapter 15. Look, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. If we look at Yeshua's words in Luke chapter 22, verse 67, he says, If you are Messiah, they said, tell us. Yeshua answered, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And so this is a term of power. And the word fellowship really has greater meaning too. It's the word konania. And what we're seeing here is actually a commissioning of Paul and Barnabas and offering a full support to their ministry to the non-Jews, offering full support for the message of liberty from the tradition of the non-Jews having to become full proselytes. And this is happening, think about this, this is happening before Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 verses 1 and 2 says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. 
And so we should now understand why Paul and Barnabas, after receiving the right hand of fellowship, were the perfect ones to send. And the outcome would be almost a foregone conclusion because the Jerusalem council in this private meeting had already put their stamp of approval on their message. And with this decision in Acts chapter 15, it becomes for the assemblies of Yeshua law. This is the way it is from now on. So I think we can begin to see how powerful this would have been for Paul and why he's using this in this letter to establish his authority. He had the approval of the Jerusalem assembly. Verse 10 says, All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. They asked that they continue to remember the poor, and this would have been easy for Paul. This was a major major problem in the first century and a major theme in Yeshua's uh, ministry as well. It is, as we can see in Acts, a major theme for the first century congregations because it tells us the disciples sold their, or these men sold their property and gave to those who were in need. But there is a bit more too. We're nearing a time of a great famine that lasted for years. The followers of Yeshua were not popular among the authorities in Jerusalem. So remembering the poor in Jerusalem was very important. Not only that though, but look at Yeshua's ministry. Look at Yeshua's words. The Torah advocate for care of the poor the widows in the orphan, orphans. It's the theme of many of Yeshua's parables. The parable of the ten virgins is about caring for the poor. Good deeds in general. The lamps in the parable are the word of God. And all the virgins had lamps. In other words, they all had the word of God. The oil in the lamps has come to mean in Christianity the this, this Holy Spirit. But that's not the case in the first century. If you look at first century writings, it would have meant good deeds. The moral of the parable is that all the virgins had the lamps of the word of God, but only half put the word of God at work in their lives. Only half acted upon it by helping their fellow man. In other words, only half obeyed. And we find in the parable of the sheep and the goats, the same thing. What you have done for the least of these, my brothers, you have done for me. Good deeds. We find it in the story of the rich young men. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And we could go on. It was a major theme in Yeshua's ministry because taking care of the poor, the stranger, the widow and the orphan are major themes in the Torah. And Yeshua kept Torah. I think we'll leave off here as the next few verses get a little more lengthy in explanation. We'll get into those next week.